Part One, Sections Six and Seven of Flatland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Flatland: A Romance of Many Dimensions by Edwin Abbott Abbott. Part One, Section Six, of Recognition by Sight. I am about to appear very inconsistent. In previous sections I have said that all figures in Flatland present the appearance of a straight line, and it was added or implied that it is consequently impossible to distinguish by the visual organ between individuals of different classes. Yet now I am about to explain to my Spaceland critics how we are able to recognise one another by the sense of sight. If, however, the reader will take the trouble to refer to the passage in which recognition by feeling is stated to be universal, he will find this qualification, among the lower classes. It is only among the higher classes, and in our more temperate climates, that sight recognition is practised. That this power exists in any regions and for any classes is the result of fog which prevails during the greater part of the year in all parts, save the torrid zones. That which is with you in Spaceland an unmixed evil, blotting out the landscape, depressing the spirits, and enfeebling the health, is by us recognised as a blessing scarcely inferior to air itself, and as the nurse of arts and parent of sciences. But let me explain my meaning, without further eulogies on this beneficent element. If fog were non-existent, all lines would appear equally and indistinguishably clear. And this is actually the case in those unhappy countries in which the atmosphere is perfectly dry and transparent. But wherever there is a rich supply of fog, objects that are at a distance, say, of three feet, are appreciably dimmer than those at a distance of two feet eleven inches, and the result is that by careful and constant experimental observation of comparative dimness and clearness, we are enabled to infer with great exactness the configuration of the object observed. An instance will do more than a volume of generalities to make my meaning clear. Suppose I see two individuals approaching, whose rank I wish to ascertain. They are, we will suppose, a merchant and a physician, or, in other words, an equilateral triangle and a pentagon. How am I to distinguish them? Reader's note. The following paragraph makes reference to an accompanying diagram. Diagram 1 is a rightward-pointing equilateral triangle the vertical left-hand side of which is marked BC, the other two sides being marked BA and CA. Dotted lines are drawn from B and C to a point further to the right to form an isosceles triangle. The far right-hand point of this triangle represents the eye of the observer, and a horizontal dotted arrow pointing left from it indicates his eye-glance. A broad vertical line, DAE, is drawn to indicate what the observer sees. DAE is bright at the centre and darkens sharply towards its ends. End of reader's note.
it will be obvious to every child in spaceland who has touched the threshold of geometrical studies that if i can bring my eye so that its glance may bisect an angle a of the approaching stranger my view will lie as it were evenly between his two sides that are next to me viz c a and a b so that i shall contemplate the two impartially and both will appear of the same size now in the case of one the merchant what shall i see i shall see a straight line d a e in which the middle point a will be very bright because it is nearest to me but on either side the line will shade away rapidly into dimness because the sides AC and AB recede rapidly into the fog, and what appear to me as the merchant's extremities, viz. D and E, will be very dim indeed. Reader's note. The following paragraph makes reference to an accompanying diagram. Diagram 2 is a regular pentagon, sitting on a horizontal base, with C1 at the apex, A1 at middle right, and B1 at lower right. Longer dotted lines are drawn out towards the right, upwards from B1 and downwards from C1, to form an irregular pentagon. The far right-hand point of the extended pentagon represents the eye of the observer, and a dotted arrow pointing from it towards the centre of the lower left edge of the pentagon indicates his eye glance. Again, a broad line D1A1E1, parallel to the lower left edge of the pentagon, is drawn to indicate what the observer sees. D1A1E1 is bright at the centre and darkens very gradually towards its ends. End of reader's note. On the other hand, in the case of 2, the physician, though I shall here also see a line D1A1E1, with a bright centre, A1, yet it will shade away less rapidly into dimness, because the sides A1C1, A1B1, recede less rapidly into the fog, and what appear to me the physician's extremities, viz. D1 and E1, will be not so dim as the extremities of the merchant. The reader will probably understand from these two instances how after a very long training, supplemented by constant experience, it is possible for the well-educated classes among us to discriminate with fair accuracy between the middle and lowest orders by the sense of sight. If my Spaceland patrons have grasped this general conception so far as to conceive the possibility of it, and not to reject my account as altogether incredible, I shall have attained all I can reasonably expect. Were I to attempt further details, I should only perplex. Yet, for the sake of the young and inexperienced, who may perchance infer, from the two simple instances I have given above of the manner in which I should recognise my father and my sons, that recognition by sight is an easy affair, it may be needful to point out that in actual life most of the problems of sight recognition are far more subtle and complex. If, for example, when my father, the triangle, approaches me, he happens to present his side to me instead of his angle, then until I have asked him to rotate, or until I have edged my eye round him, 
I am for the moment doubtful whether he may not be a straight line, or, in other words, a woman. Reader's note. The following paragraph makes reference to an accompanying diagram. The diagram shows a hexagon with points at top and bottom. The vertical right-hand side is marked AB. Dotted lines are drawn downward from the topmost and upward from the bottommost points of the hexagon, and extended to the right until they meet, forming an irregular pentagon. The far right-hand point of the pentagon represents the eye of the observer. The line AB is extended to where it meets the dotted lines to form a broad vertical line CABD. The middle portion of this line, AB, is bright, and the outer portions darken towards C and D. End of reader's note. Again, when I am in the company of one of my two hexagonal grandsons, contemplating one of his sides, AB, full front, it will be evident from the accompanying diagram that I shall see one whole line, AB, in comparative brightness, shading off hardly at all at the ends, and two smaller lines, CA and BD, dim throughout and shading away into greater dimness toward the extremities, C and D. But I must not give way to the temptation of enlarging on these topics. The meanest mathematician in Spaceland will readily believe me when I assert that the problems of life which present themselves to the well-educated, when they are themselves in motion, rotating, advancing or retreating, and at the same time attempting to discriminate by the sense of sight between a number of polygons of high rank moving in different directions, as, for example, in a ballroom or conversazione, must be of a nature to task the angularity of the most intellectual, and amply justify the rich endowments of the learned professors of geometry, both static and kinetic, in the illustrious University of Wentbridge, where the science and art of sight recognition are regularly taught to large classes of the elite of the States. It is only a few of the scions of our noblest and wealthiest houses who are able to give the time and money necessary for the thorough prosecution of this noble and valuable art. Even to me, a mathematician of no mean standing, and the grandfather of two most hopeful and perfectly regular hexagons, to find myself in the midst of a crowd of rotating polygons of the higher classes is occasionally very perplexing. And, of course, to a common tradesman or serf, such a sight is almost as unintelligible as it would be to you, my reader, were you suddenly transported into our country. In such a crowd you could see on all sides of you nothing but a line, apparently straight, but of which the parts would vary irregularly and perpetually in brightness or dimness. Even if you had completed your third year in the pentagonal and hexagonal classes in the university, and were perfect in the theory of the subject, you would still find that there was need of many years of experience before you could move in a fashionable crowd without jostling against your betters, whom it is against etiquette to ask to feel, and who, by their superior culture and breeding, know all about your movements, while you know very little or nothing about theirs. In a word, to comport oneself with perfect propriety in polygonal society, one ought to be a polygon oneself. Such, at least, is the painful teaching of my experience. 
it is astonishing how much the art, or I may almost call it instinct, of sight recognition is developed by the habitual practice of it, and by the avoidance of the custom of feeling. Just as with you, the deaf and dumb, if once allowed to gesticulate and to use the hand alphabet, will never acquire the more difficult but far more valuable art of lip-speech and lip-reading, so it is with us as regards seeing and feeling. None who in early life resort to feeling will ever learn seeing in perfection. For this reason, among our higher classes, feeling is discouraged or absolutely forbidden. From the cradle, their children, instead of going to the public elementary schools, where the art of feeling is taught, are sent to higher seminaries of an exclusive character, and at our illustrious university to feel is regarded as a most serious fault, involving rustication for the first offence, and expulsion for the second. But among the lower classes the art of sight recognition is regarded as an unattainable luxury. A common tradesman cannot afford to let his son spend a third of his life in abstract studies. The children of the poor are therefore allowed to feel from their earliest years, and they gain thereby a precocity and an early vivacity which contrast at first most favourably with the inert, undeveloped, and listless behaviour of the half-instructed youths of the polygonal class. But when the latter have at last completed their university course, and are prepared to put their theory into practice, the change that comes over them may almost be described as a new birth, and in every art, science, and social pursuit they rapidly overtake and distance their triangular competitors. Only a few of the polygonal class fail to pass the final test or leaving examination at the university. The condition of the unsuccessful minority is truly pitiable. Rejected from the higher class, they are also despised by the lower. They have neither the matured and systematically trained powers of the polygonal bachelors and masters of arts, nor yet the native precocity and mercurial versatility of the youthful tradesmen. The professions, the public services, are closed against them, and though in most states they are not actually debarred from marriage, yet they have the greatest difficulty in forming suitable alliances, as experience shows that the offspring of such unfortunate and ill-endowed parents is generally itself unfortunate, if not positively irregular. It is from these specimens of the refuse of our nobility that the great tumults and seditions of past ages have generally derived their leaders, and so great is the mischief thence arising that an increasing minority of our more progressive statesmen are of opinion that true mercy would dictate their entire suppression by enacting that all who fail to pass the final examination of the university should be either imprisoned for life or extinguished by a painless death but I find myself digressing into the subject of irregularities, a matter of such vital interest that it demands a separate section. Section 7 of Irregular Figures 
Throughout the previous pages I have been assuming, what perhaps should have been laid down at the beginning as a distinct and fundamental proposition, that every human being in Flatland is a regular figure, that is to say, of regular construction. By this I mean that a woman must not only be a line, but a straight line, that an artisan or soldier must have two of his sides equal, that tradesmen must have three sides equal, lawyers, of which class I am a humble member, four sides equal, and generally that in every polygon all the sides must be equal. The size of the sides would, of course, depend upon the age of the individual. A female at birth would be about an inch long, while a tall adult woman might extend to a foot. As to the males of every class, it may be roughly said that the length of an adult's sides, when added together, is three feet or a little more. But the size of our sides is not under consideration. I am speaking of the equality of sides and it does not need much reflection to see that the whole of the social life in Flatland rests upon the fundamental fact that nature wills all figures to have their sides equal. If our sides were unequal, our angles would be unequal. Instead of its being sufficient to feel or estimate by sight a single angle in order to determine the form of an individual, it would be necessary to ascertain each angle by the experiment of feeling. But life would be too short for such a tedious groping. The whole science and art of sight recognition would at once perish. Feeling, so far as it is an art, would not long survive. Intercourse would become perilous or impossible. There would be an end to all confidence, all forethought. No one would be safe in making the most simple social arrangements. In a word, civilization would relapse into barbarism. Am I going too fast to carry my readers with me to these obvious conclusions? Surely a moment's reflection and a single instance from common life must convince everyone that our whole social system is based upon regularity or equality of angles. You meet, for example, two or three tradesmen in the street, whom you recognise at once to be tradesmen by a glance at their angles and rapidly bedimmed sides, and you ask them to step into your house to lunch. This you do at present with perfect confidence, because everyone knows to an inch or two the area occupied by an adult triangle. But imagine that your tradesman drags behind his regular and respectable vertex a parallelogram of twelve or thirteen inches in diagonal. What are you to do with such a monster sticking fast in your house door? But I am insulting the intelligence of my readers by accumulating details which must be patent to everyone who enjoys the advantages of a residence in Spaceland. Obviously, the measurements of a single angle would no longer be sufficient under such portentous circumstances. One's whole life would be taken up in feeling or surveying the perimeter of one's acquaintances. Already the difficulties of avoiding a collision in a crowd are enough to tax the sagacity of even a well-educated square. But if no one could calculate the regularity of a single figure in the company, 
all would be chaos and confusion, and the slightest panic would cause serious injuries, or, if there happened to be any women or soldiers present, perhaps considerable loss of life. Expediency therefore concurs with nature in stamping the seal of its approval upon regularity of conformation, nor has the law been backward in seconding their efforts. Irregularity of figure means with us the same as, or more than, a combination of moral obliquity and criminality with you, and is treated accordingly. There are not wanting, it is true, some promulgators of paradoxes, who maintain that there is no necessary connection between geometrical and moral irregularity. The irregular, they say, is from his birth scouted by his own parents, derided by his brothers and sisters, neglected by the domestics, scorned and suspected by society, and excluded from all posts of responsibility, trust, and useful activity. His every movement is jealously watched by the police till he comes of age and presents himself for inspection. Then he is either destroyed, if he is found to exceed the fixed margin of deviation, or else immured in a government office as a clerk of the seventh class, prevented from marriage, forced to drudge at an uninteresting occupation for a miserable stipend, obliged to live and board at the office, and to take even his vacation under close supervision. What wonder that human nature, even in the best and purest, is embittered and perverted by such surroundings. All this very plausible reasoning does not convince me, as it has not convinced the wisest of our statesmen, that our ancestors erred in laying it down as an axiom of policy that the toleration of irregularity is incompatible with the safety of the state. Doubtless the life of an irregular is hard, but the interests of the greater number require that it shall be hard. If a man with a triangular front and a polygonal back were allowed to exist, and to propagate a still more irregular posterity, what would become of the arts of life? Are the houses and doors and churches in Flatland to be altered, in order to accommodate such monsters? Are our ticket-collectors to be required to measure every man's perimeter before they allow him to enter a theatre, or to take his place in a lecture-room? Is an irregular to be exempted from the militia? And if not, how is he to be prevented from carrying desolation into the ranks of his comrades? Again, what irresistible temptations to fraudulent impostures must needs beset such a creature? How easy for him to enter a shop with his polygonal front foremost, and to order goods to any extent from a confiding tradesman. Let the advocates of a falsely called philanthropy plead as they may for the abrogation of the irregular penal laws. I, for my part, have never known an irregular who was not also what nature evidently intended him to be, a hypocrite, a misanthropist, and, up to the limits of his power, a perpetrator of all manner of mischief. Not that I should be disposed to recommend, at present, the extreme measures adopted in some states, 
where an infant whose angle deviates by half a degree from the correct angularity is summarily destroyed at birth. Some of our highest and ablest men, men of real genius, have during their earliest days laboured under deviations as great as, or even greater, than forty-five minutes, and the loss of their precious lives would have been an irreparable injury to the state. The art of healing also has achieved some of its most glorious triumphs in the compressions, extensions, trepannings, colligations, and other surgical or dietetic operations by which irregularity has been partly or wholly cured. Advocating, therefore, a via media, I would lay down no fixed or absolute line of demarcation. But at the period when the frame is just beginning to set, and when the medical board has reported that recovery is improbable, I would suggest that the irregular offspring be painlessly and mercifully consumed. End of section 7 Recording by Ruth Golding